Good morning. Good to be with you. My name's Chad Myers. Uh, it's a privilege to be here this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us online. Today we are road tripping to the lake. And it's not a real far road trip, is it? Talk about that in just a minute. Lake Murray has a, a bit of a special place in my heart because when I was beginning to uh, be aware that my not yet wife was interested in me, took me a while to catch up to her. Uh, in college, uh, one of the things I did was I invited her on a sunset motorcycle ride and we came across that uh, spot there and saw the sunset and we stopped and got out. And so uh, Lake Murray is a little bit integral in uh, me and my wife being together for almost 17 years uh, this month, almost 17 years. Uh, so we're road tripping to the lake today. What is the point of a road trip? Usually, it's not the road trip itself. Uh, maybe some people just like to drive, but usually you're, you're aiming for something. You're going somewhere. You have a destination in mind, and when you get to that destination, you have something to do. And we took a road trip recently to vacation in northern Michigan. That's about a 15-hour road trip from here, and we like to drive it straight. What's the longest road trip you've ever been on? Go ahead and shout it out. 17 hours, what was this one? 26. Oh, 26, all right. Where'd you go? Okay, that's a long drive. Did you go through Amarillo? That's my hometown. Amarillo, Texas? Yeah. It's nothing to look at there, but there's great Mexican food. <clears throat> Someone earlier said Australia. I said, I'm not sure if that counts as a road trip unless you drove. Uh, it is a long flight. Uh, we went on a road trip to Michigan. It's a longer drive. And so because it's a longer drive, we're going on vacation. The, the minivan looked like it was going on a longer drive, if you know what I mean. You ever seen those cars that they're going on perhaps a longer vacation and you're not sure if they're going on vacation or if they just spent $1,000 at the flea market? That's us. That's how we roll. Right, We pack up our beach chairs and our beach toys and uh, we uh, pack up our bikes and I put that luggage rack on top and sometimes I put the bikes up on top of the luggage rack and sometimes we haul a trailer and we got four kids and we have a Great Dane, 110 pound Great Dane named Chewbacca and sometimes her head hangs out the window. We're that family you see on the highway and you're like, good luck. And we're the ones that you don't want to stay behind too long because you're not sure if you hit a bump, something's going to fall off of the top or the back. I'm the guy that's supposed to secure things on the top of the minivan. And we pack up and we prepare, but the point is not just to go on the trip. The point is to get there. And then we have vacation and we relax and we get all that stuff out of the car and we unpack and we soak up the sun and go to the Michigan beaches and go on hikes and enjoy the 85 degree weather during the day and 60 degree at night. Whew, jealous. We took sweatshirts for July. It was amazing. <clears throat> and sometimes I think we get our faith a little bit backwards. A little bit like we prepare a lot, we pack up a lot, we put it in the car, and then maybe we just drive around. And we never get to that place of a destination to, that says, hey, we're doing this for a reason. There's something we're supposed to do. You know, maybe we're, we're binging on the latest podcast or the latest, greatest, next Christian author or the next conference, and we're just getting a whole bunch of knowledge, but God calls us to do something in this world, 
to live life. He calls us to action. And Jesus road tripped from heaven not to just fill our heads with knowledge, but to invite us into a journey, invite us to do something in this world that actually makes a difference, that really makes a difference. And in our passage today, he road trips about four days. That's a long road trip. He road trips about four days from where he is to a lake. And he spots several men and he calls them. And he says, I want you to follow me. I have something for you to do. We've been in this series, Summer Road Trip, and we're, we're, we're highlighting, we're sightseeing through scripture. And one of the first weeks we went to Genesis, to the garden. And there in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, we realize that redemption is a lot bigger than we usually make it because we realize that the point of the story is for God to give humanity something to do in this world. We're supposed to reign over the world. In fact, two times in that passage it says, rule over the earth, have dominion. We are God's royal priests and kings and queens to rule in his stead. That's why you don't see God because he wanted humanity to do it. And he gives us something to do, and he says, I want you to flourish, multiply, spread out all over the world, and steward my kingdom of love, justice, and mercy to every square inch of the universe. But we rebelled. And we said, I would rather do life my way, and entered sin, and enters death, and now there's this great impediment to the mission. There's this great blocker. We were supposed to be fully functioning humanity, but sin makes us subhuman. God says, I'm not done though. You might have fell, but I'm not going to fail. And so he calls a people through Abraham and through Moses. And we saw a few weeks ago, this great gift of the law that God gave through Moses to say, hey, um, it's a live question. How do you maintain faithful relationship with me? I rescued you. How do you walk in my ways? And how do you, Old Testament people of God, become a billboard to the nations? Are we preaching yet? Become a billboard to the nations that says, this is what redeemed humanity looks like. Come and get some. That's Old Testament mission. And then we saw last week, the people of God, again, this is what sin is. I will function autonomously and independently. Won't want to submit to your reign. Don't want you to be king. We want a king, a human king. Why? So we can look and be and act like all the other nations. But God had said, but you're supposed to be my distinct people, my treasured possession. And if you maintain that distinctiveness, you will have effective mission. And they said, now we'd like to forfeit that distinctiveness. And in so forfeit the effectiveness of the mission. And this brings us to this lake scene today where Jesus has all of this narrative in mind and says, I have something to say about the effectiveness of the mission. I have something to do to restore humanity. That's why why salvation, when we talk about it in trite terms, like it's just about me going to heaven, it's just too small. It's just way too small because Jesus wants to do something here and now so that we become fully functioning agents on his behalf. I haven't even got to the passage yet, have I? I'm a bit long on the intro, so uh, we'll have to move it. (laughs) Matthew 4, 18 through 22. And Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Remember that. Come, follow me, 
Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers. Side note, he calls two sets of brothers into his small knit community. Jesus is not afraid of family dysfunction. He's not. He's not afraid of family dysfunction, which you and I, all of us have, because he knows family dysfunction is an opportunity for family discipleship. So we don't have to be afraid of it or ashamed of it. We all got it. It's tough, but God uses those places to bring us closer to him and to each other. The family is the microcosm of God's relationship with his people that he wants to show to the world. Still going on in the passage. And once they left the nets, going off from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, so they're also fishing, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So it's a familiar passage, but hopefully we'll bring some new insight to it today that has something to say for us. This is the call of Jesus, the call to follow him. Now, he says it very similarly in other places to other people, but he doesn't say, I'll make you fishers of men to everybody. But the call is still the same. Come and follow me. Come and be my disciple. Come and be my student. I will be the teacher and your job is to submit to my teaching and my lifestyle and follow me closely so that you can pass on my teaching and my lifestyle. It's twofold. Come follow me and I'll give you a mission. I'll make you fishers of people. That's what discipleship is. That's why we have to talk about it like this. It has a cost and it has a call. The cost of discipleship is mortification. The call of discipleship is mission. You say, well, that's a 50-cent word there, Mr. Chad. What is that? Mortification. It's an old-school word. I'm sure you're familiar with it in here. It's an old-school old word that simply means this. To mortify is to put to death the fleshly desires. The cost of discipleship is death to self. It's death to self. But when we say death to self, let's talk about it in a humane, helpful way. Because what we don't mean when we say death to self is that you have to die to your talents and your gifts and your skills and your personality and your uniqueness and your dreams. And often we get it so backwards in the church that we make people uh, look less human than God made them to be. And we say, you got to lay down all that stuff. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The thing I'm interested in you laying down is actually your sinful nature. It's the part inside of you, the rebellious, autonomous, I'm going to live independently, thank you very much, I don't need other people, I don't need God. It's envy, it's selfishness, it's jealousy, it's gossip, it's dissension, it's lust, it's all these lists of things that you know. This is the thing that Jesus says, this is what you need to die to. This is what you need to put to death. We can't outgive God. Let's just say you're a great violin player, and I've heard this before, and the violin player says, oh, I think it's becoming too much. It's becoming more important than God. I need to lay it down. And, 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 and the mindset is backwards. No, 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 no. You can't outgive God. Why don't you continue what you love and what you're good at and use it for him? We have to die to the right things. We have to die to the sinful nature. But that is the cost. It is mortification, and that means it is painful. It's a death to ego. And every time you start to try to put to death ego, that hurts. That hurts. That's why it's so important. Let me just go on a side note. I'm going to take some liberties here today. That's okay. This is not on the notes. That's why it's so important 
to build up a healthy ego in small kids. That's why when they sing and they play, and let me tell you, it's hard to follow boom whackers and bells. That's a tough ask to follow these beautiful, precious children. You, right, right, Izzy? This is a tough follow, but that's why it's so important when they finish, and you did an incredible job, church, so applause to you. You gave them a standing ovation. That's why it's so important to say, yeah, you're fast. You could be the next Usain Bolt. You could be the next Van Gogh. You're wonderful. You've got great stuff in store for you. You have to build up a healthy ego. That's why neglect and child abuse is so evil because if you don't build up a healthy ego, we won't have anything healthy to die to when we're adults. You see? And God says, I want you to die to the right thing but you do have to die to it. Maybe you remember the uh, story in the 1980s. I got a couple of Olympic things in my head for whatever reason. Uh, in the 1980s, the uh, U.S. hockey team went to the Olympics. There's a movie uh, that was made from it uh, called Miracle, and uh, Kurt Russell plays the coach there, and it's a ragtag group of college ice hockey players, and they're going to go up against grown men, uh, the Soviets, uh, and there were massive underdogs, and they're going along this journey, and they can't figure out, they, they can't play well together. They've got a bunch of guys from individual teams who maybe were the star on their team, but they're not gelling together, and they're not getting along, and they're not practicing well, and finally it one late night practice, the coach just says, what's the name on the jersey? And they start to list their last name. And he kept asking them, and they kept doing the sprints, and what's the name on the jersey? And they kept listing their own name. What's the name on the jersey? He kept listing their own name. And finally, he reminded them, the name on the jersey is USA, and the name on the front of the jersey is a whole lot more important than the name on the back of the jersey. And friends, when Jesus calls us into this redeemed community, the name on the community in the front of the jersey is a whole lot more important than the name on the back. It's about us together, not me individually. Us together representing God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian, wrote the book, A Cost of Discipleship. He uh, he was German. We had a German intern come to our church in St. Louis, and uh, his name was Thomas. It was spelled Thomas. You pronounced it Thomas, but he was very uptight about how to pronounce his name. And we would say, hey, Thomas, and he would say, it's Tomas. So we learned quickly it was Tomas. And then we began to talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he'd say, oh, you Americans, you don't know how to pronounce his name. It's Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer. And we say, well, how do you say it? And he would say, it's Bonhoeffer. It sounded like a mouthful of a BMW. That joke didn't go well at 9 o'clock. I don't know why I used it in the 1045. Jeez, uh, fool. That's the definition of a fool, right? Keep trying the same things and get the same result. No one left then. Three of you left now. That was pity. Thank you. <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German theologian. He was the leader of an underground church that um, existed under the Nazi regime and uh, eventually he was executed, something by order of Hitler or one of his right-hand men, uh, two weeks before he was going to be released from uh, prison camp. And he wrote a book called Cost of Discipleship, and I think he knows from experience what this means. And he said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You see, the challenge with a lot of the preaching is the, in the West is that we skip this part. 
And we say, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and live. That's true, but it's out of order. This is first. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In Matthew 9, Jesus says this to Matthew. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. It's a tax collector. This was worst of the worst. This was um, uh, hated by his own people because worked for the Romans and collected taxes from his people and could charge extra to pad his own pockets. So you see the betrayal and hatred there. Tax collector's booth, follow me, he told him. Jesus, who are you calling into this mission? And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, both of these passages, it seems to imply like when Jesus issues the call, immediately these guys stand up and follow him. And I've heard people, preachers say, you know, well, it's because Jesus called him and Jesus, he issued this call and these guys just threw their nets down and they left their father and their livelihood and immediately there they go. And I always thought to myself, really? Like they'd never met Jesus before? They Jesus just shows up and he calls them to follow him and then they get up and they leave their family? That sounds a little bit crazy. Until I started to dig a little bit deeper and most scholars think that, well, there were more calls than one and there was a timeline through which Jesus worked. And in fact, if you go to John 1, it says, Jesus says to Andrew, go get your brother Peter. And this is the initial conversation that they're having. This occurred probably a year later. So the disciples had some interaction with Jesus. They're assessing Jesus. He's teaching. He's doing work. He's preaching the news of the kingdom. They're walking around hearing him. This isn't, this isn't a simply a magical thing. Oh, this guy called me. Now I'm, I, know, I don't know what to do, but I got to follow him. This is, this is calculated. This is considering the risk. This is saying, well, we've seen him. We've heard him. And now he calls them, and immediately they follow him. You say, so what's your point? And my point is this. The, the cost of following Jesus is not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong endeavor. And Jesus patiently issues those same calls to us throughout our life. Following Jesus is a long obedience in the same direction. It's a long obedience in the same direction, as one author put it. These guys didn't know what they were getting into. If you would have asked them, hey, you know what's going to happen in three years? This, no. They couldn't have expected that this rabbi who called them to follow him would have been crucified. They couldn't have expected that he would have raised from the dead. They couldn't have expected that this story would have been so strong and they would have believed it so deeply that 11 out of the 12 would have died for the truth of it. They couldn't have expected that. But they obeyed the call nonetheless. It's kind of like marriage. With me and my wife coming up on 17 years, I see that you've, several of you in this room, been married longer than, than me and my wife. And sometimes you meet people that are in this engagement phase and they're in this honeymoon phase and, uh, you know, they're so, so in love and they look at each other and their eyes are just this big. And, you know, maybe a little bit jaded part of you says to yourself or to your significant other, they have no idea what they're getting into. And we don't. We don't know what we're getting into. We come to the altar and we make vows and we say, I do. And there's a reason we say in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, because it's going to get better and it might get worse. That's true. 
You don't know what's going to happen two years in. You don't know what's going to happen ten years in. You can't control that other person, so you have no idea who they're going to become. You can't control the circumstances, so you don't know what's going to happen. But you say yes, and you commit to it, and you make a vow, because when that does surprise you or shock you, you go back to the vows, and you say, oh, yeah, yeah, remember what I said as a person? I said I do, and I'm going to keep doing That's a lot like what it means to follow Jesus. You don't know what's going to happen. You may lose your passion. You may be in a season of dryness. It may be really, really hard. But we made vows. We said, I do. And we're going to keep on doing. Because God has made vows to us. And he binds himself to us. And he's not ashamed to be called our husband to say, I commit myself to you. No matter your faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Faith is trusting the future circumstances based on the present call. We don't exactly know what we're getting into, but we know who is calling us. And we know he is the most exciting, dangerous, and safe, trustworthy person we could ever be in relationship with. And so we say yes. Billy Graham said it like this, becoming a Christian is the work of a moment. Being a Christian is the work of a lifetime. And who did Jesus call? And why would it have been so significant for these people? And what does it mean for us? You got fishermen and tax collectors so far. What's the significance of that for us? Well, it's really significant. So let me just go, let me tell you this. For uh, most Jewish boys and girls at the age of six years old, they would have gone to synagogue and entered into what's called Beit Sefer. And there they would have learned the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would have learned that. At the end of that school, they would have been about 10 years old. Most girls would have gone home to learn from mom and to be prepared how to be a wife. They would have gotten married about 13 or 14 years old. Most boys would have gone home to learn from dad and learn how to sustain the family business, press olives, we're going to farm, uh, we're going to cultivate the vineyard, or we're going to fish, you see? But at 10 years old, if they were the best of the best and the cream of the crop and they were really, really sharp and had really strong integrity and strong will, then they could have gone on to the second phase of Jewish schooling, which would have been called Beit Sefer. And there they would have learned the rest of the Old Testament, large portions of it memorized, large portions of it in their head and in their heart, and the rabbi teaching them and teaching them and grilling them and asking them questions and memorizing and chanting and going through the school together. At the end of Beit Sefer... Many of them would have gone back to learn the family business again. But the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the sharpest, the valedictorians, they would have entered into an internship, so to speak, with the rabbi. And they would have followed the rabbi. They would have walked a little bit with the rabbi, and the rabbi would have questioned them and taught them. And then at the end of that time, they would have come and sat before the rabbi And if the rabbi thought that they had the potential to carry on the rabbi's teaching and character, he would then issue the invitation, come and follow me. Now, what does that mean for us? That means that none of the disciples that we see that Jesus called actually made the cut. They weren't the cream of the crop. There were no valedictorians. That's why the book of Acts says, who are these uneducated men? 
They didn't make it probably past the, after the first schooling, and so you have fishermen, tax collectors, and everyone around would have said, this is the team? This is the team you're taking to the Olympic? Are you kidding me? This is the team you're putting in mission? These guys? Us? This is the team? We are inadequate, but we are equipped. We're inadequate, but we're equipped. And God calls us. And sometimes I think he believes that we have the potential to steward his mission more than we do. That he believes in you and me that we have what it takes more than you and I believe in you and me. That's what it means when Jesus says, come follow me. I want you to learn from me, watch me. This is the way I walk. This is the way I interact with wealthy people, with poor people, with people of different generations, with people of different genders. This is how I communicate. And the disciple is supposed to follow the rabbi and soak it all in and, and, and walk so closely that they might be covered in the dust of the rabbi as an old blessing goes. To follow was to be conformed to the character and curriculum of the rabbi. Is it what it means for you? Because that's the call from Jesus. There's not only a death to self and a cost, there's a call. It's a mission. He's sending us out. He's doing something with us. He says, come and follow me and I will send you. I have something for you to do. Do you remember the promise to Abraham? It's, I want to bless the world through you. There's something for us to do. I'll send you out and fish for people. This is what Matthew 28 says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Do you see now? This is what the rabbi did. I'm going to teach, I'm going to live, and then when I'm gone, you're going to teach my teaching, and you're going to live my life like I did, and that's how you make disciples. That's how you recruit people. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. For God to be with someone means that he empowers them to fulfill his calling. It's not simply comfort. It's an empowerment. But you and I, there's something that gets in the way of that mission, isn't it? Something that gets away in the way of us being successful image bearers. There's something that is an impediment that blocks the fruit-bearing process of the Spirit for you and I, isn't there? It's called sin. It gets in the way. It blocks us. And you look at the story of God for the people of God and it continues to sabotage them throughout the whole story, right and left, until Jesus. And he's gonna do something about it. He wants to remove the blocker so that we can be successful image bearers for him. I, uh, several years ago, I played in a flag football league. I like to um, pretend that I'm younger than I am and to play in sports leagues, even though, you know, you get to this point where your mind starts to tell your body what to do and your body doesn't appreciate that anymore. 
you think you can jump that high still? You think you can run that fast? And so I played in a flag football league and most of the guys were like me and we show up one day, we were the weekend warriors, you know, type thing. We show up one day and we look across from us at at our opponents and we were like, oh no. And these guys were just fresh out of high school. They were lean, they were mean, they were strong. They looked athletic, all of their uniforms matched. That's important, right? We had t-shirts on. We had, all of us had kids. Most of us had dad bods. So we show up to this thing and we're like, we're in trouble. Like they're, they're gonna be fast than us. They're gonna out hustle us. That's a no brainer. So we're in trouble. And we expected to get blown out of the water, but we get on the field and we start to realize these guys don't play too well as a team. And the quarterback threw some bad passes and the receivers made some drops and we score a touchdown or so. And then you see them start to just bicker with each other. At one point, there was a ball thrown from at one player to another player and they're starting to yell at each other. And we're just slowly sitting back, resting on our dad bots, watching this thing happen. And this young athletic team that should have hands down beaten us Self-destructed. They got in the way. And that's often a picture of what it's like when we lose our missional effectiveness. Sin gets in the way. It sabotages our potential, who we can be together and what we can accomplish as a team and a community. And Jesus says, this is one of the reasons I'm bringing redemption is not just to whisk you away to heaven. It's to remove the impediment of sin so that you can be fully functioning humanity again so that when you say things like God loves you and God has a plan for you and let me pray with you and let me cry with you and let me rejoice with you, they actually have weight to them because I've made you effective in your mission. Jesus says some hard things in the Gospels. And one of the things he says is in Mark 7, 20 through 23. He says, this is what makes us, this is the impediment. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. It's from within, out of a person's heart. It's not out there. It's in here. Please hear me carefully. There is spiritual warfare out there. But first and foremost, we got to look in here. That evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from inside and make a person unclean or defile a person. And Jesus loves the mission so much that he died to remove the impediment of it. And says, guys, I want you to I want you to live out my character. I want people to look at the community of faith and say, wow, that's new humanity? I think I'd like some of that. But in order to do that, I've got to do some heart surgery. I've got to get in here and we've got to clean things up and you've got to cooperate with me. You can't be here. You can't be here. You've got to be here. I surrender. It's painful, but you can come on in. You can do work here. He knows, and we know that the human heart is the primary force in perpetuating evil. It's easy for us as Christians to want to look out the window and blame everything. Well, this is the problem, this is the problem, this is the problem, and there's probably a lot of truth to that. But first and foremost, we can't do that unless we're looking in a mirror saying, what's going on here? 
what's going on here? We want to talk about reforming systems. We want to reform the church. We want to reform political systems, national systems. And we can get pretty far, but we can only get so far without the gospel. Why is that? Because purified hearts lead to purified systems. It's purified hearts that lead to purified systems. That's why the church is the hope of the world. And God's okay with that. God made a promise to Abraham. And last I checked, he doesn't lie. I'm going to bless you, and you'll be a blessing. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But if sin keeps getting in the way, then how can we be a universal blessing to our neighbors, our coworkers, our children and grandchildren? God has to cleanse us first. Universal blessing begins with individual cleansing. God will bless all the world through the church. He's made that promise. He'll do it through Jesus. But he will cleanse us in the process so that we can be effective with the words we say and the actions we take. I want to invite you just to a brief time of prayer. Wherever you are, if you would just um, maybe close your eyes, bow your head. I have just a few questions for you to reflect on wherever you are. Just pray about these in the next few moments. Is Jesus calling you today? Maybe you feel like he's calling you for the first time. Maybe you're here and you've felt really far from God your whole life and you feel like he's calling you for the first time today. Maybe you feel like he's calling you again. Like you gave your life to him and it was VBS or worship camp or church camp, but you feel like something is, he's inviting you to something deeper, more surrender today. Maybe there's a unique aspect of mission that you are being invited to act on, that God says, I want you to do this and you've put it on the back burner and maybe it's been a time for that, but now the season is here and it's one of those things that you say, well, I'm afraid to do that and I don't know if it'll work out and I don't have the resources and I don't have the skill set and I don't have the people around me and if it's gonna work out, God's really gonna have to come through. That sounds like a God-sized mission. Is there a sin that's getting in the way? It's getting in the way of your core relationships. It's getting in the way of your work. It's getting in the way of your relationship to God. Is there a sin that you need to confess and repent of so that you can bear fruit? Take just a few moments to pray about these. Gracious Heavenly Father, you tenderly call us wherever we are. That's what grace is, and we find mercy in your house. We don't have to clean up everything to belong. We don't have to figure it all out to come in here. 
You say in Isaiah 55, if you don't have money, come and drink and buy milk and wine and feast, even if you don't have anything to pay with. That's what grace is. We don't have anything. We're just beggars. And yet you've set the table. God, you may be calling people today to their next steps. I pray for courage. Maybe there's sin that's getting in the way. I pray for confession and repentance. Maybe there is something unique to do. I pray for the faith to step out. This is what it means to die to ourselves and to live on mission for you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.